One of the things I love about our church uh, is, is the wide variety of backgrounds, uh, spiritually speaking, that the people in our church have. And so um, this is what I know. I know that there are some of us that are sitting in this room that have maybe grown up uh, in the Christian world, okay? You've grown up going to church every Sunday and it's just been a part of your life for as long as you can remember. But at the same time, there are many in our church who this whole idea of following Jesus is brand new. Uh, you know, it's something brand new to your life, something unfamiliar that you're still kind of learning about. And then there are still others of us in here who, who still would not consider yourselves a follower of Jesus per se. And you're still learning and trying to figure out what that life looks like. And I love this variety because it really adds to a conversation, helps us understand what it's like to be at different places on the spiritual journey. And I think I was having a conversation uh, with a friend of mine. He just became a Christian at, on Easter two years ago. And I remember talking with him and I asked him, I said, hey, I'm really curious. You know, I, I grew up in church. I'm like, so a lot of this is just familiar to me. I said, I'm curious, what was it like for you when you first came to Ethos? What were your, 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 the things that kind of struck you? And I never forget what he said. He said, the thing that stood out to me, I, I, was, I came here to learn about Jesus. And I remember walking out going, man, you Christians really like to sing a lot. What's, what's with all the singing? Why do you guys sing so much? I just wanna, I wanna learn and be taught about what it's like to, to follow Jesus. I think about another article that I read. Uh, it was about a young woman that became a Christian. And when she became a Christian, she was dating a young man who was not a follower of Jesus. In fact, he was Jewish. And so there was a real like difference in their faith. And so he agreed to come to church with her one day to see what that life was like for her. And as they were leaving, she asked him, you know, she said, well, what did you think? And he kind of had this wide-eyed look on his face. He said, wow, it really is that much Jesus. And she said, yes, because Jesus is central for us but he was blown away by how much they worshiped and sang about Jesus. And I'm gonna say talked about Jesus. And here's one of the things that I realized when I have those conversations or I read stories like that is that a lot of what we do when we come together as the body of Christ, when we come together as the church, there are some things that we do that the people who are outside of the family of Jesus probably think are kind of weird. There are some things that are foreign to the rest of the world. Yet if we've done it our whole life, it just starts to feel normal. And if we're not careful, what we do can even start to become to feel routine. And yet there are others of us in the room who are brand new to following Jesus. And this act of worship that we do on Sundays when we sing and people are raising their hands and moving, it feels new and, and uncomfortable and, and foreign. We don't really know what to do with it. And then there are those of you who are brand new to Christianity and you're having the response to some of these people who referenced earlier, like, what is this? What are they doing? Why do they sing so much? Why are these people clapping and raising their hands and swaying back and forth? What, what is going on with these people? Today, we want to look at what it means to worship Jesus, to worship God as a follower of Jesus. What does it look like? Everyday discipleship. For us who want to follow Jesus, what does it mean for us to worship God. You know, truthfully, Jesus says very little about worship when you read through the Gospels. However, the New Testament is packed full of places, in the Old Testament as well, where God's people are instructed to worship and given instructions on what worship looks like. And today we're just going to look at one such text in the New Testament. Like I said, that's Romans chapter 12. And we're just going to look at two verses. Two verses. It's a short a short text, but it's really packed full of meaning. I think though, before we jump into that, we've gotta have an understanding of what we mean when we use the word worship. 
we need to have a good working definition of what worship is. And so here's, here's a simple working definition of worship. I think worship is the full devotion of our attention and affection to something or someone. The full devotion of our attention and affection to something or someone, kind of three key words are devotion, attention, and affection. What are the things that we devote all of our attention to, all of our affection to? That is often the thing we'll find that we worship. And the question that some of us need to wrestle with this morning is not will we worship, but what will we worship? The question is not will we worship, but what will we worship? Ralph Waldo Emerson was, you know, one of the great 19th century poets and writers and thinkers in American history. And he has this great quote, one of my favorite quotes about worship. He says this, he says, listen, a person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. Those things that dominate our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Emerson had, he'd seen, he was a keen observer of humanity and he knew that all of us, our tendency is to worship something. We will devote our affection and our attention to something. And that thing that we devote our attention and our affection to will shape us and change us and it will determine our lives and our character. What are the things that have our attention and our affection, because the world will offer you many things to devote your attention and your affection to. I mean, remember just last week, we talked about greed and kind of the dangers of money, right? It'd be very easy to to devote your attention, your affection to money and thinking that it could solve your problem. Some of us do this with relationships or sex. We think that if we could just get this man or this woman, then we we would be happy and we devote all of our attention, all of our affection to the pursuit of that one person. Some of us do this with a variety of things in life. I think about sports. If you were to plop somebody in the middle of college game day on a Saturday that was from a different culture, different place, that didn't know anything about America, what would they see? They would see us as people that we really devote our attention, even our affection to this sport, right? We love it. It's like a day-long celebration. I think many people would be able to say, oh, it looks, that looks a lot like what I would imagine worship to look like. And so there's many things that can compete for our affection and our attention. And so we experience this kind of worship war in our hearts where there are things in the world that will war with us, war with our hearts, and compete for the devotion of our attention or our affection. Christian worship, the worship of someone who follows Jesus, who is devoted fully to God, it is a response to who God is and what God has done by devoting all of our attention, all of our affection to him. This is what we mean throughout the rest of this morning as we talk about the worship of a follower of Jesus. It is a response to who God is and what God has done by devoting all of our attention, all of our affection to him. We're gonna read in Romans chapter 12. Romans is a book written by a man named Paul uh, that Dave mentioned earlier who became a Christian in the city of Damascus. And Paul was writing a letter to some Christians in, in first century Rome. And this is kind of what he says to them. We're going to start in, in chapter 12, look in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. This is what Paul writes. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, 
in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to attest and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Like I said, this is a short passage, but I think it is jam-packed with meaning about worship, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus who wants to worship God. And I think there's three primary things we want to see in this text. Three primary things, and they are this. They are that worship, Christian worship is a response, not a requirement. Christian worship is a response, not a requirement. The second thing we're going to see is that Christian worship engages spirit and mind, not spirit or mind. And the third thing we're going to see is that Christian worship is all of my life, not just one day a week. All of my life, not just one day a week. Let's go back and walk through each one of those. The first one was this. Christian worship is a response, not a requirement. Look what Paul says. He says, listen, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, what this means is when you have set your eyes on the goodness and the mercy of God, then respond with worship. He doesn't say, hey, give your lives to Jesus and then maybe he'll give you some mercy. He says, listen, in view of God's mercy, when you witness his mercy and his grace, worship is the natural response that comes for us. I love, and throughout Paul's letter, he has spent so much time in this letter to the, to the Christians in Rome, unpacking the beauty and the depths of God's grace and God's mercy. In chapter seven, you see him having this dilemma within himself. He's going back and forth and he's saying, listen, this is, this is the man I want to be. These are the good things I want to do. And yet I always keep doing the things I don't want to do. These are the things that I don't want to do. And yet I keep finding myself doing them. He says, this is the condition of who I am. Who can save me? Who, who can help me? And being trapped in this mortal body that is slave to death. And then his response is just this at the end of chapter seven. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. You see, through Jesus Christ, we receive the mercy of God, not because we've figured it out and we've learned how to be the perfect person or to be the perfect follower of Jesus. But in Jesus Christ, God extends his grace to us before we've ever done anything right. And worship is the response that comes from grabbing on to that truth. Christian worship is our response to who God is and what God has done. Christian worship is not one of the things I have to do to try to make God happy. We don't come in here and, and sing songs and and take communion and confess sin and pray. We don't do those things because we're trying to earn something from God. We worship in response to the mercy he's already given us. This is Christian worship. And I love, as Paul keeps going, he, he starts talking about not being conformed to the patterns of this world. He gives this picture that when you get a view of God's mercy and you offer yourself to him in worship, there's something that happens in us. He says, no longer will you be conformed by the patterns of this world. You see, the patterns of this world, the world around us, the patterns of the world around us have been shaped by, by brokenness and by sin. 
And the patterns that we see in the world are things like shame and guilt and fear and isolation and loneliness and pride and selfish pursuits. This is the pattern the world has given us to work with in order to deal with the things we experience in life. And sometimes this comes because of the sin we commit. Sometimes we do things that we know are wrong. And the pattern of the world is to cover it up, to hide in your guilt, to hide the things that you have done so that nobody can see them. Or sometimes it's because we are the, we are the victims or the receivers of someone else's sin. And so people do things to hurt us. They do things that make us feel unloved, unworthy, shameful. And the pattern of the world says, hide it, hide your shame. And when you hide it, you walk under the weight of it. Or maybe if you're fortunate enough to be the type of person that can function pretty well by the standards of this world, then the pattern of the world says, hey, be prideful. You're not like all these other people that are racked with shame and guilt and fear and anxiety. You should take great pride in who you are. Nothing, nothing will keep us from worshiping God more than being conformed to those patterns of being racked with our own shame, guilt, and fear or our own pride and sense of self-sufficiency. But when we encounter God's mercy, he lifts us out of those patterns When we receive God's mercy, we no longer think we're unlovable or unworthy because we've received the love of a loving God. When we receive God's mercy, we realize that we cannot be prideful in and of ourselves because there is a God who is over and above us and bigger and before us, who's wiser than us, and yet in his mercy reaches out to us. See, when we encounter God's mercy, this amazing transformation starts to happen in our hearts. This is the way, the way Paul writes. He says, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, there's this amazing spiral of transformation that happens in worship. We encounter God and his mercy. I and mean, when we see his mercy, we respond with worship. And as we respond with worship, we become more aware of the mercy of God and we're moved to worship more. And then we receive the mercy and we want to worship more. It's this beautiful spiral that lifts us and elevates us out of the hurtful and harmful patterns of the world. This is what it means to be a Christian who worships out of response. And when we respond to God's mercy, he lifts us out of the things that try to hold us down in this world. It's a beautiful picture. So Christian worship is a response, not a requirement. And the second thing, Christian Worship engages the spirit and the mind, not just the spirit or the mind. There are several ways that Paul kind of addresses this in, in chapter 12 here. And I, I think the, the key phrase where we, sees this, where we see this, he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And listen to this phrase, this is your spiritual act of worship. Some of you may have a Bible that doesn't have that phrase, spiritual act of worship. Some of your Bibles might say reasonable act of service. I can remember seeing this in two different translations and being like, wait a minute. Those two things feel like they could not be more different. Spiritual and reasonable. Like, has our culture not taken those two things and said, nope, those are vastly different. Those two things are not the same. You cannot be spiritual and also be reasonable. You can't be spiritual and also be logical. What in the world were the translators thinking? How did they miss this? How does one guy hear one thing and one guy hear another? But see, this is what's beautiful about this phrase that Paul has chosen to use here. 
See, the word he uses here for spiritual or reasonable, it was a Greek word that actually captured the meaning of both of these things. The word is logikos, and everywhere else that we see it in the New Testament, it's clearly pointing to things that are spiritual. It's referencing the things that are spiritual, that are of God and from God. And yet it also conveyed this sense we get from it, our word logic. It also conveys this sense of reasonableness, of logic. And here's the thing about us as people is that typically as Western modern people, all of us have a disposition, right? Some of us are more intellectual and that's our natural disposition. We lean on that side of logic and reason and what we, what we need, what we want is truth, objectifiable, evidential truth, something that we could stand on. So when it comes to worship or when it comes to encountering God, we don't want an emotional experience. We want something objective we can stand on. And then there are others of us who have this disposition more towards the emotive, the feeling side of things, right? And what we think is, no, we need an experience. We don't just need an idea. We need an experience of God. And what Paul is trying to say is, listen, these two things don't have to be separate from one another. Your logic, your reason, your spiritual being, they are not separate from one another. Jesus would say it this way. In John chapter four, He says, listen, I'm gonna tell you about the kind of true worshipers that my father is seeking. The worshipers my father is seeking are those who worship in spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. Our mind and our heart, our logic and our spiritual longings, all responding to the mercy of God. This is what Christian worship looks like. And so Christian worship It is a response, not a requirement. And it engages our spirit and our mind, not just our spirit or our mind. And then the third point we see here is that Christian worship is all of my life. It's not just once a week. Christian worship is all of my life, not just one day out of the week. And I I love, this is what Paul says. He says, listen, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices that are holy and pleasing to God. The only response to God, the grandness of God's mercy and God's goodness, the only appropriate response is all of my life. All that I am devoted to God. When Paul uses the word body here, he says, offer your bodies. He's not trying to convey a sense of flesh and blood or bones and you know, that kind of thing. He's not talking about this. He's talking about all of me, all of who I am, responding with devotion to God. This means that everything that I do, everything that I do, all of my life is to be lived in worship, is lived in an effort to devote my attention, my affection to God. This is the response of worship, of the song we were singing this morning. It talked about every moment Every moment, every moment, every moment is why Jesus died on the cross, not just for when we gather on Sundays. And so we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Okay, what does this look like for every single moment to be a worshipful moment? What what does this practically speaking look like? You know, I think we do this communally and we do it personally. We do it communally and we do it personally. So when we gather here on Sundays, we're doing it communally. 
We are responding to the mercy of God communally as a body, as a family, as a community. And there's different things that we do to practice worship communally. One of these things is music. And I want to camp out on music just for a minute. Because I know that it's one of the things that we do as a church, as a family, that's really important. It shapes us. And we see all through the Bible, all through the Bible, we see examples of God's people using music as a way of responding in worship to who God is. See, something profound happens when the people of God gather together. And music has this unifying force amongst us. Music is a powerful thing. And I believe that music is a gift from God. God created, right? He did not just create the tangible things that we can touch and feel. God created music. This amazing, like, untangible, mysterious force that draws people together. It's this universal language that all of humanity can connect to. There's a a man named Bradford Keeney who is well-known in in kind of therapy circles. And uh, Bradford Keeney was really infatuated with the way that people experience deep and meaningful change. And so he began to study how people experience change. And one of the things he realized is that one of the places that people experience change across the board is in religions, religious practice. And so he became really infatuated with studying the religions of the world. He was not necessarily a Christian, but he, he traveled the world and studied many of the world's religions, both ancient tribal religions to indigenous practices of people, to to modern Western practices of religion, to Christianity, to Buddhism, to Eastern mysticism. He, He studied all of these religions. And what was fascinating, he said there was one common thread through all of these different practices of religion. One common thread, and it was music. They all used music to connect them to their practice of whatever religion that it was. And here's what I think is amazing in that, is that our God created music. It is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. We see this in our culture, right? The city of Nashville is what? Music city. It's shaped deeply by the power of music. And so when we worship with music, music is something that a gift that God has given us to engage our minds, to engage our spirit, to engage our bodies. And so when we worship God in music, it is good to sing It is good to let music impact our bodies. It's good to to dance in celebration in response to God's mercy. It's good to raise our hands when we worship. It's good to stand still and listen and focus on the words while we worship. It is good to kneel. It is good to stand. It is good to sit. It is good to clap. It is good to move. It is good to be still. All of these things are appropriate expressions of a response to the goodness of God's mercy when we worship with music. It's a great gift of God where he has given us a powerful way to experience his mercy and to respond with celebration. But music isn't the only thing we do when we worship. We worship by confessing. When we confess sins to one another, we are elevated out of the patterns of this world of hiding, right? We take our guilt and our shame, we bring them before Jesus and we realize that his mercy has already washed them all away. This is part of worship. We worship when we pray. We worship when we learn. And so when we get into God's word and someone's teaching us, this is part of worship because we're encountering the mercy of God and it's transforming our minds, which helps to elevate us out of the patterns of this world. We we worship when we take communion. We take this piece of bread and a cup and we remember that the mercy of Jesus is not an abstract idea, 
but it is some, someone. It is a God who put on a body and a God who gave us his mercy and his grace at the expense of his own suffering. And so communion is a time of worship. So we worship communally and we do these things together for a purpose, for a reason, as a response to the mercy and the grace of God. But worship is also personal and it goes beyond these walls of this room that we're sitting in right now. Worship is something that we do throughout the week. It's something uh, that each of us can practice. So I, I think... Uh, one of the times I experienced to worship the most tangibly outside of a church building was shortly after my oldest son was born. I'll never forget watching my wife labor and labor for hours and hours and hours and then seeing this new little life that came out and just being filled with joy and love. But the worship that happened was the days following the birth of Elijah. The worship that happened was in the way that God allowed me to serve my wife and to serve my newborn child. I can remember like making meals. I never cook. I'm a terrible cook. But I can remember making meals for my poor wife who had to eat the food that I made. I remember making this food. I remember cleaning my house. I remember changing diapers. I remember helping Amy and serving Amy. And I remember God gave me this picture said, Aaron, this is spiritual worship. You are responding to the mercy I've given you by extending mercy and grace to someone else. This is a spiritual act of worship, reflecting the glory of God by offering mercy and service and grace to someone else. And so worship, every time you choose to think of someone else before yourself, you are practicing the act of worship. You're reflecting the mercy of Jesus to other people. Every time you yield your rights to someone else, every time husbands and wives, when you lay down your life to serve your spouse, you are practicing Christian worship. Every time those of you who live with roommates and you have that one roommate that just drives you crazy and yet you choose to love them and extend them mercy and to serve them in the name of Jesus, you are worshiping the God of mercy and grace. I think it even gets more everyday moment than this. So something that I love is coffee. You guys weren't expecting that, were you? Coffee. I love coffee. And there's nothing I love more during the middle of the week. That's kind of, that's a little bit hyperbolic there. I, I do love lots of things more, but I really love coffee. And in the middle of my week, when I'm in the middle of my afternoon, I'm getting tired, I love a good pour over. And so I'll grind my coffee. And I, what I love is making the coffee. I love grinding the right amount of water. I mean, grinding the right amount of beans and getting the right amount of water. And I love pouring that water over those freshly ground coffee beans and seeing it bloom and seeing the, the aroma coming out of that. And then when I get to take that first sip and the taste of that really well-made cup of coffee, I love it. Guess who made it? Guess who made it? God created that amazing cup of coffee that's in my hand. The good things that we enjoy in this life, all, they all give us opportunity to reflect and look at the God of mercy and say, thank you, God. Thank you for a great cup of coffee. Thank you, God, for guacamole. Oh my goodness, it's so good. <laughs> thank you, God, for good food. Thank you, God, for good music. Thank you, God, for movies that tell amazing stories about the struggle of humanity. Thank you, God, for the good things that you've put in our lives. You see, worship is something that can go through our whole week anytime that we realize that every good and perfect gift we have has come from the Father above. And we respond with devoting our attention and our affection to him. Worship through music can also happen during the week. 
For some of us, we think this is something we only do when we gather. It is a beautiful thing to worship God with music during the week. Something my, my wife stretches me in. And listen, I'll just be really overt. I know that some of you probably don't love contemporary Christian music. It's not the style of music that you're gonna choose if you wanna just listen to music. And I get that because that's basically who, who I've been most of my life. <laughs> it's not my favorite. But my wife will make these playlists on Spotify and she'll just play them in our house. And I'll be doing dishes. The next thing I know, I'm singing. I'm singing your praise ever be on my lips as I'm scrubbing plates. And then I start to see my kids, my five-year-old sitting at the table, singing day and night, night and day, let incense rise. Or God, your praise ever be on my lips. I'm like, wow, my kids are worshiping in our kitchen, in our living room. Worship is not just something we do in here. It's something we do throughout the week in a variety of ways anytime we realize that we've been the recipients of the grace and the mercy of God and we devote our attention and our affection to him. This is what it looks like to worship God with all of our lives. So Christian worship, it is not a requirement but a response. Christian worship engages our spirit, our heart, and our mind. And Christian worship is not just one day a week, it is all week. So what, what do we do with this? How do we bring this to the ground and make it practical? I hope I've given you some of those kind of things. But I think the first thing we need to do this morning is we need to ask a question. Does God have all of your affection and all of your attention? Does God really have the full devotion of your attention and your affection. And I think probably all of us, if we're honest, will be able to answer that question honestly by saying no. There are probably times where God has all of it. There are times in my life where I feel like I really do a good job at devoting my, my attention, my affection to God, but there are other times that I don't. And so the question we have to ask is, what are the things that compete? This is part two of that question. What are the things that compete with God for your attention and your affection? What are the things that compete with God for your affection and your attention? There's probably a wide variety of answers across this room. What are the things that compete with your attention and your affection for God? Now, I'm not gonna tell you what to do with those things. But I think as we go through our week, kind of our exercise this week that I wanna invite all of us into is to find the things. You're gonna find there are some things in this life that stir your affection for God and there are some things that rob you of affection for God. There are some things that draw your attention to God and there are some things that compete with God for your attention. This week, I wanna challenge all of us to find the things that stir your affections for God and practice those. So if music is something that stirs your affection, don't let music become the recipient of your affection or your attention. Instead, let it stir your affection for God. On our website, like on Ethos's website, you can find every song that we sing here. If you go to our homepage at the top, you'll see this word that says grow. You click on grow and it says worship. You click on worship and it will tell you all the songs, the artists, where you can find them on iTunes, on Spotify. Don't just let these songs shape you on a Sunday morning. Let them stir your affection for God throughout the week, in your car when you're driving down the road or at home when you're cleaning your house. 
Find the things that stir your affection for God. And let's practice those this week. And let's practice as we do them. Let's allow our hearts to be responsive to the grace and the mercy that God has given us. Now, the cool thing about today's topic in everyday discipleship is that we get a chance to enter right into it, right? Sometimes it's kind of like, hey, generosity, we're going to go out this week and try to live a generous life, or hey, hearing from God. But today we're talking about worship, and when we finish up here, we immediately get to engage in this act of worship, this part of being a disciple that we've talked about. So as we worship, we're going to go to the communion table, take the bread, take the cup, and be, be aware, be conscious of the fact that you have been the recipient of God's grace and God's mercy. Let it stir your affection for God and let that affection respond through worship and praise, through dance, through reflection, through raising your hands, through singing the words that give God glory. I'm gonna pray for us and we'll all stand together and go to communion and let's ask the God of grace and mercy to stir our hearts for affection to him. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your grace We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Father, I pray right now as we go and we take this bread and this this cup of juice, Lord, would you let it be a reminder that your grace and your mercy are not abstract ideas, but they became very real when you put on flesh. Lord Jesus, they became very real when you crawled upon a cross and died. They became very real when you walked out of an empty tomb and extended hope of a new life for us. Would you stir our hearts, Father, in the way that only you can? Would you stir us that we would be devoted to you with our attention and our affection? And may we worship you, God. Help us to respond with worship. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.